here. Hey, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul. So glad that you are here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in perhaps the most famous section in all of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. But more specifically, as we recited together this morning, we are studying the Lord's Prayer. And as we said last week, as we introduced this prayer, the Lord's Prayer is literally at the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, if you look at the outline of the sermon, you look at the way it's structured, its themes, literally in every single way, everything builds towards the Lord's Prayer and everything cascades off of it, and for good reason. Let me take us all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where, just, where Jesus issued an invitation. And his invitation was into something that he calls the blessed life, the happy life, the life flourishing. We might call it the good life. Jesus says, if you want to live the good life, if you want to really be happy, and who doesn't, right? He says, let me, let me give you a peek into the purposes and the priorities of God. And as we've seen, as we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes back to the central point over and over again. He says, if you want to be happy, if you really want to have true joy, if you really want to flourish in this life, the only path to happiness comes through righteousness. And by righteousness, we don't mean perfection. By righteousness, we don't mean earning our salvation. But the word that Jesus uses for righteousness, teleos, it literally means wholeheartedness. To be consistent inside and outside, to be the same person inwardly as we might display outwardly. Nothing kills joy, nothing kills happiness, and I think we can all speak to this from personal experience, than being a spiritual schizophrenic. When, when our spirituality that we display outwardly doesn't match the heart and dwelling realities that we and we alone know to be true. Matthew calls this, Jesus calls this in the Gospel of Matthew, hypocrisy, doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, if you want true happiness, this comes from wholeheartedness, being an integrated person, having a consistency, a constancy between these two things. Well, what we've seen, and, and we need to understand this, church, that wholeheartedness doesn't just happen by osmosis. If you are in a season of your life where you lack spiritual power and consistency, you don't just wake up one morning after a prolonged season of carnality, of worldliness, of hard-heartedness, and say, you know what, today's the day I'm ready to kill it spiritually. It doesn't work that way. It's like driving around town and you see those cars with the bumper stickers. It's usually a Volvo. Can I just say that? It's usually a Volvo. I have a Volvo, so let me just, I have a Volvo. But you might see the sticker, it says 26.2, right, 13.1. I actually saw one the other day that says 140. And I'm like, who, what crazy, is this Gabe Peters driving this car? Who is this, right? This is absolutely crazy. If they put a sticker on my car, it would say zero. And then over Memorial Day weekend, it would go to, into the negative zone, right? But if I decided, you know what, I want one of those stickers for my car but I want to earn it. I want to actually do the things required. 
It's not just going to happen. I'm not just going to wake up one morning and say, today's the day I do a half marathon. Today's the day I do this incredible feat. Because the reality, if we want things to continue to happen in our lives, just talk about our physical health, just keep doing the same things. The same is true for us spiritually. A lot of us think this way. And the reason the Lord's Prayer please hear this church, is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus says, if you want to be wholehearted, if you want to be happy, if you want to be constant, consistent, same on the inside as the outside, then your primary pathway to wholeheartedness is through prayer. Your primary pathway to wholehearted righteousness is nothing less than communion with God. And Jesus says, and I want to teach you how to do that. So last week, you know, we we introduced the Lord's Prayer, talked about some of its structures and parameters. But this morning, we are digging into the prayer proper. And so we're going to be in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 15. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read the whole prayer together, and then we're going to dig in. Verse 7. And when you pray, Jesus is speaking, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, as your people, we come to you and we confess we struggle to pray. Lord, everything in our lives and culture shouts independence, autonomy, do it yourself, make your way, take care of your own. And Lord, we know prayer cuts across the very heart of that and exposes it for what it is. Lord, it's a lie. It's a deception. Lord, we need your help to wrap our hearts and minds around this. So give us your grace Today, as we unfold a way, a pattern, a pathway towards communion with you, Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may take your seats. Let me just talk for a second about how the Lord's Prayer is structured and then tell you what we're going to try to accomplish this morning. There are actually six petitions or requests in this prayer. And a lot of books have been written on the Lord's Prayer, um, a lot of great exposition, so there's a ton of material out there for you. But, but most outlines of the Lord's Prayer kind of break, break the prayer down into to two parts. There, there's, there's the first three petitions, there's the second three petitions, and the first three petitions have to do with the glory of God. That his will, his name, his renown will be made known. So, so God's glory. The second three petitions 
have to do with God's grace or God's gifts. And they flow out of the first three. And so we're going to take two weeks today. We're going to talk about the first three, zeroing in on verses 9 and 10. And the next week, we'll talk about the second three. And so I've, I've ordered these sort of under three headings, and we're really zeroing in here on verses 9 and 10. And we're going to talk first about the pattern of prayer. Secondly, the paternity of prayer. And thirdly, the priority of prayer. So pattern, paternity, and priority. Now, as we talk about the pattern of prayer, let me, let me tell you what I'm, I'm referencing here. What, I'm, what we really want to rest, gra- grapple with here this morning is, what are we supposed to do with this, Pastor Paul? Like, actually, Jesus said, pray this way. How are we supposed to use it? What, what does this mean for us? How is this supposed to shape the way I pray. What is Jesus wanting us to do with the Lord's Prayer? And that's a very pertinent question because there are two equal, but I would say opposite mistakes we can make when it comes to the Lord's Prayer. And most of us will fall off on one side of the horse or the other related to these these two ways we commonly, or Christians commonly approach the Lord's Prayer. And one is that we could treat it merely as ceremonial. Simple recitation, mindless repetition. I, I'm, I'm, I've, you might have seen shows or episodes or maybe an ESPN behind the scenes as they look at a coach gathering his players up before the football game, before they run out into the field, and he leads them into the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever heard this happen? And they proceed to recite the Lord's Prayer at breakneck speed. I mean, like, as fa- it's like he, they're the guy in the 80s in the FedEx commercial who's talking a million miles a minute, right? And you're like, does anybody know what anyone said or what anyone meant? Or it could be, like me, you grew up in a liturgical church environment where you recited the Lord's Prayer each and every Sunday, like we did today. And, and in fact, that, that can be a good thing, and we're going to return to that. But it might be that that was, like me, the only time you prayed. You know, the the Lord's Prayer kind of had this ceremonial, symbolic sort of place in your life, but it it encompassed all the aspects of praying. Is is that what Jesus means when he says, I teach you to pray? Now, I would say most of us, though, probably fall off the horse on this second kind of error, and that just has to do with the kind of church we are, our backgrounds, our denomination, those sort of things. Is that, is that we've reacted, right, against that ceremonial recitation of the Lord's Prayer. That, that Maybe that symbolizes dead orthodoxy or dead traditionalism to us. And we just basically, when we look at the Lord's Prayer, let's be honest, we just kind of ignore it, right? We just kind of set it aside. We, we know it's there. If somebody asks us to say it in the worship service, we might do it. But we're not quite sure how to utilize this in our spiritual lives and so there is sort of a neglect now I want to say I think both of those are equal and opposite errors and I think we can learn something about the pattern that the Lord's Prayer follows if you turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 11 what this contains is a shorter more truncated version of the Lord's Prayer it's it's similar okay but it's shorter and it varies a little bit. And let, let, let me read this to us. Luke, this is Luke 11, verse 2. 
And he said to them, this is Jesus, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, how, should, how do we explain the differences? Some like to pit the Lord's Prayer, these versions against each other, like they do other sections of the gospel. And let me just kind of explain what I think is happening here and what this has to do with us. Jesus was undoubtedly, he was an itinerant preacher. So, so he was the ancient world's version of Billy Graham. So Billy Graham did not pastor a local church. He went and taught and led crusades and teachings across the world. And essentially, he had the same sort of teaching and talk that he would utilize, the same teaching, in various contexts, and he would adapt it. Kind of like a politician will go on a campaign tour, and they'll have a standard stump speech, but what they say to the people in Tallahassee is different than what they say to the people in the sewer down in Gainesville, for example, okay? <laughs> just, just, just a Memorial Day happy, right? This wasn't even in the notes. It just flowed naturally, all right? And so, so, so think about it this way. Jesus, wherever he was traveling, would, would have these same kind of core teachings, and he would adapt them. And here, he's teaching in a different context, and he varies it slightly. Now, this is kind of what Paul does, the apostle, when he talks about the qualifications of elder. Remember, he lists out one qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, another set of qualifications in Titus 1. And the whole idea is not that he's pitting them against each other or that he's trying to be comprehensive. That should give us a sense that what we're striving here is not a roteness. There, there's, not a, there's not a magical formula in the incantation of the Lord's Prayer. It, it's, not a, it's not a spell. It's not, it's not an endeavor where we are trying to get every word right. Rather, I think what Jesus intends for us in giving us the Lord's Prayer is to give us a pattern, is to give us a template. And you'll notice in these six requests that, that they ultimately, they orient to the horizontal and the vertical. Or I got that right. The, the, the vertical and the horizontal. And if you follow every prayer request we might pray up the river to its original source, all prayer will originate from one of these six petitions. As we're wrestling through God's will, God's purposes, problems in relationships, problems in our own heart, problems in our soul, these two axes, okay, the, the, the glory of God and the grace of God are to be sort of this rubric that we continually orient to. Now, we're going to, as we unpack these petitions, I'll show you how that is true. But let me just say something about this before we leave this point. Some of us don't know how to pray. And by some of us, that's pastor speak for all of us, right? All of us struggle at different times in knowing how to pray. Of course we do. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul wouldn't say, when we don't know what to pray, what? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And some of us, one of the biggest obstacles to praying is not knowing how to pray. Guess what? That was the disciples. This is why they approach Jesus in Luke chapter 11 and say, Lord, teach us to pray. 
So it, it, if, if that is you, you are in good company. But which also means if all else fails, and of course there's all kinds of praying besides reciting the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prays all the time. Paul prays all the time. You know that's not the point. The point is that this gives us, without fail, always, always a place to start. And so if you're, if you're one struggling to jumpstart your prayer life, and you may have agreed with everything we've said so far, but Pastor Paul, I'm just really struggling. When we turn to the Lord's Prayer, it, it gives us a pattern. And as you begin to tie your praying to the Lord's Prayer, you are going to see spiritual vistas open up. Lord, I need you to provide. I'm in between jobs, there are bills due, and you tell us to pray for our daily bread. But Lord, what do you mean by daily? I kind of like praying for my monthly bread or my annual bread, or I, wanna, I want my bread for the next 30 years. And God says, no, 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 pray for your daily bread. Lord, I'm really wrestling with this issue, this interpersonal issue with someone else. I, I'm, I'm struggling with unforgiveness. And we go to the prayer and it tells us that Jesus has forgiven us. Oh, of course we are going to forgive others. And let me just say, as, as a fellow prayer struggler, that, 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 that's my self-identity this morning, as a fellow prayer struggler, I find this greatly encouraging. That, that God has given us not a rote formula, but a pattern, which I think you'll, it'll become clear how this works as we unpack it, a pattern to go to, to say, everything that's important about my life and the world and God can be situated in this prayer. Now, as we start to unpack these petitions, Let's look next at how Jesus says we are to frame our praying to God. In other words, the first words out of our mouth. And this is what we're going to call the paternity of prayer. Look in verse 9. Pray then like this. First four words, highly significant. Our Father in heaven. Now, some have said that this idea of the fatherhood of God is a New Testament phenomenon. In other words, Pastor Paul, the God we have in the Old Testament is never father. He's always angry and he's this and he might be holy and wrathful, but he's, but he's never a father. And, and what we want to say very clearly, this is not true. That actually there are 15 specific times in the Old Testament where God is referred to as father. But if you read the prophets, if you read the Psalms, what you will see is that this idea of God being a parent to his people God being a, a father who wants to gather his children in. God being um, acting in, the, in the, this idea of, of, of motherhood, of wanting to care for and love for his people. It's all over the Old Testament. What we simply see in the New Testament is this idea of the fatherhood of God coming into full bloom. We see it kind of in color. It's like going from black and white into color. Fatherhood of God, we mentioned this last week, over 200 times in, mentioned in the New Testament, 47 times 
in the Gospel of Matthew 12 times in this Sermon on the Mount. And that is significant. Because remember what we said last week, never, not one time in Scripture, is the fatherhood of God said to be true of every single person on earth. God is many things to every person on earth. He's creator. He's sovereign. He is king, whether people acknowledge it or not. But there is a special relationship reserved for the people of God. Only the people of God who are, who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior can rightly call God Father. It is a unique privilege. It is, it is a mind-altering reality. And what Jesus is meaning to for us to grasp here in this metaphor of God as Father is the incredible spiritual access we have to the God of the universe. His love for us, his care for us. Remember, God is many things. Don't mix your metaphors. Don't try to dilute the metaphor of God as Father because it is incredibly powerful. We sang this morning, does the Father truly love us? And what did we say? He does. This is what Matthew says. What do you think, Jesus is speaking, if a man has a hundred sheep, and by the way, we're the sheep, okay, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So listen, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God keeps all that are his. God loves, cares for, protects by virtue of our intimate access with him. He is our Father. Now, Paul echoes this as well in his letters, Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is just the Aramaic for the Greek word for father. It's, it's dad, pops. It's, 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 a, it's a totally familial term, Right? So we know Pastor Tim Keller passed away um, about a week and a half ago. And I think he has some of the most profound things to say about prayer. And listen to this quote. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access isn't it interesting? Your child doesn't really care who you are in the quote-unquote real world. Your child, if they're under eight, if they're over eight, they should know better. But if your child comes to you in the middle of the night, they shouldn't have a category as if, as if this is a good time or not. And let's be honest, as human parents, it's not very fun being a parent at 3 a.m., right? That should not be allowed. That, that, that should be off-limits. Not so with God. God, our Father, never sleeps. He's always available. He's always accessible. 
This is why Jesus says, begin your prayers in this way. Because your Father gives you that kind of access to him. Now, there's a second part, though, to this opening line. Our Father, Jesus adds, in heaven. Now, why is that significant? We typically think of heaven as some sort of distant, spatial, ethereal reality up in the sky somewhere. But we know that's not the way the Bible speaks about heaven. The way the Bible speaks about heaven is this idea that God is everywhere, that, that God is always present, but not always simply present, but that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that he's overall, that he's omniscient. He's fully aware of every single thing that's happening. You know, it's one thing to have a father who loves us. It's another to have a father who knows absolutely everything about us and everything going on around us and still cares for us, is still in control. Let's nothing happen to us apart from his will, what he believes to be for, for our good. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about this as I was working on this sermon when my dad and I would go to, to football games. We would go, go to games two hours away. We'd make that drive. And for some reason, we would go to night games and we wouldn't stay the night. We would drive back that same night, okay? Probably because we needed to go to church or, or what have you. And so games would end at 11 and, and I, we would get out there on Stadium Drive and my dad would start to drive. And of course, I did what any eight-year-old would do. I went to sleep. And there was no greater feeling and to go to sleep and then two hours later wake up as we're getting off the freeway, we're almost home. Now, it never, ever, ever occurred to me that I could not completely, 100% trust my father. I didn't think about wrecks. I didn't think about being pulled over. I didn't think about my dad falling asleep at the wheel. I knew that I could completely trust him as an eight-year-old. But see, as we get older, we come to realize, right, all of our earthly fathers are frail. They are human. They fail. Even when they want to be there for us, they can't always be there for us. I've never felt more lonely in my life when my parents dropped me off at seminary. I was six hours away from growing up in East Tennessee. And I remember them driving off and then realizing they're not here if something happens. I'm gonna have to kinda figure this out, which on one hand, of course, is part of maturity, it's, part, it's, it's good. But it's also the product of being in a fallen world, isn't it? Our hearts yearn for a father who is in heaven who is always in control, always aware, never sleeping on the job. That's the assurance that we have. Theologians call this embracing both the transcendence and the imminence of God. So what is transcendence? God above us. And what is imminence? God with us. Because you realize that Christianity is the only religion in the world that worships a God that is both transcendent 
and imminent. Doesn't do you any good to worship a God that's imminent, that's with you, but is powerless as a, hum, as a, as a human father. By the same token, you can worship a God that is sovereign and above, but if there is not intimacy and access and love, it will do you no good. And again, we think about axes for our prayer life. This is a very helpful one, transcendence and imminence. And depending upon what's happening in your day and what's going on in your heart, those two theological constructs become very precious, don't they? There are times that you need to know, am I alone? Because it sure feels like I'm alone. But I need to remember, God is my what? Father. There are, there are other times life will seem like it's spinning out of control. And when I say seem, I, what I mean is it really is spinning out of control. It really is. And what you need to know is, God, I need to know that you are actually in heaven. And that you have your hand on the pulse of my life and that you are in control. And I believe, church, as we work through the Lord's Prayer, as you begin to see these axes, horizontal, vertical, God's glory, God's grace, transcendence, eminence, for us fellow strugglers to pray that God will help us. You need to know that as, as your heavenly father, God has empathy when you can't pray. He, he loves you. Parents, think about those times that you might crave conversation or relationship with your kids, but you're in one of those phases of parenting when you might be the dumbest person in the world. Do you know those phases? Hasn't happened in our house yet, but I'm sure it's coming, right? Well, when your child does move towards you, begins to talk and engage, do you say, what took you so long? What, what, what are you thinking? No. You're, you're, you have this embrace, and this is what Jesus is wanting to communicate to us about the Father. Our Father in heaven. All right, last point. The priority of prayer, and here's, I want to look at these first three petitions and try to unpack them a little bit. They, they, they come in a set. You can't separate one from the other. It's like taking a cake and trying to pull out all the different recipes, impossible. But there's three things that Jesus says we are to first pray for. And by first, what we mean is these are priority. These set the trajectory, these set our course. These align our heart and mind with God's heart and mind. And here are the three requests. Look at verses 9 and 10. Hallowed be your name. That's number one. Your kingdom come. That's number two. Your will be done. That's number three. Glory, kingdom, and will. And they clearly demonstrate for us that all proper, quote-unquote, biblical Christian prayer is one that begins and ends with God. Otherwise, you're just talking to yourself. Otherwise, you're just having a conversation with yourself, which might be okay, might be fruitful, but won't do you necessarily any spiritual good. What are we, what are we praying for 
when Jesus tells us to hallow the name of God. The, Lord, the word literally means to be treated or to treat something as holy. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't holy and that you're praying that he would make himself holy. That's not what it means. What it means is, God, you are holy. Now let me see it. God, you are glorious. Take off my blinders. Take off my, my, my murky spiritual vision and let me see things as you see things. Now, when we ask that God would reveal himself to show himself glorious, then he, then he throws this little thing. We, we ask him to hallow his name. Now, in, the, in ancient culture, we know that names were a big deal. Names signified trajectories. They communicated theological truths. They represented. Um, so, so the priest who, after the Ark of the Covenant was stolen away and taken by the Philistines, um, the, the child that was being birthed during that time, they named him Ichabod, okay? Parents, don't do this to your children. Okay, Ichabod. What does Ichabod mean? The glory of the Lord has departed. Hello, the glory of the Lord has departed. What do you want to eat? I mean, that, that's, that, that's, and that was a significant name that everybody remembers. Oh, yeah, that's what happened. When you were born, they stole the ark. I mean, that, that, this was the trajectory that was set by a person's name. Jews would have totally understood this, particularly in this culture, because whose name ruled and reigned above all, earthly speaking? It was Caesar. Caesar, Caesar's name was everywhere. In his likeness, it was on coins. It was on statues for people to worship. Laws were enacted in Caesar's name. Rule happened in Caesar's name. When Caesar's name was invoked, even if he was 2,000 miles away in Rome, it meant his name, when it was invoked, that the full power and authority of the Roman government stood behind that proclamation. It was a powerful thing. So when we pray that God's name will be hallowed, what are we saying? We're saying that just like Caesar, we, we pray that God's glory, his reign, his rule, his will would permeate into every crevice of our life. That there would not be one area of our life, of our world, of our culture, in which we are not praying, God, show up and be glorious. God, reveal yourself. God, make yourself known. And what happens as we do that, we are praying, God, your will is done perfectly in heaven. We know that. And one day, when you return, your will is going to be done perfectly on earth. But in the in-between time, we want those things to come closer and closer together. We, not spatially, but spiritually. And guys, when we start to do this, okay, this is, this is God-centered praying. Tim Keller, quote again, he calls this kingdom-centered praying. And when we, have, when we are kingdom-centered in our praying, it transforms everything. 
Parents, what are we praying for our kids? What are the usual things we pray for our kids? Get a good job, get good grades, get into that school, marry the right person, um, make wise decisions, keep them safe. And by the way, let me just say, all those are good requests, proper requests, but they're not the most important requests. Because your children can have all of those things and be totally absent in the presence of God. But when we pray, God, don't just help my child to succeed in this, but God, would your will be done in, in his or her life? Lord, would you accomplish your purpose? I think it would be great as a, as a parent if my child grew up and married and gave me lots of grandkids. But God, when I pray your will be done and that hallowed be your name, that might not be your will at all. See, guys, kingdom-centered praying is really hard. Kingdom-centered praying is really scary. Because what we are saying is, it's not about me. It's not about my desires. It's not about my wishes and wants, although there's a place for those and we're going to talk about it. But fundamentally, God, if we're not aligned right here, then everything else goes off course. If I'm not praying with you at the very center of everything else, what is it value if I gain the world but lose my soul? And so this really turns things upside down. Guys, it will transform your prayer life. Because some of you may be in a place where you feel like your prayer life is really stagnant. Maybe, what's the perennial problem in every community group? We prayed for Aunt Jenny's toe eight weeks in a row, okay? Now please understand, pray for Aunt Jenny, absolutely. But what would it be like to say, hmm, not just will you heal her whatever, but Lord, what would happen if you revealed yourself in her life? What, maybe this illness, disease is, is a way where she's supposed to trust you more. Maybe she's supposed to be a witness to her neighbors and the people that she lives with and her children and her grandchildren. God, how, you see what Kingdom Center Praying does. It, it, it transforms praying from an incantation or genie in the bottle or three wishes to, to God, we want to align ourselves with you in everything we do. And guys, I promise as you do that, God will transform your heart. Listen to Isaiah 26, 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. What, what an amazing promise of what God does in our hearts when we make him the central point of our prayer. Quick story about, about this verse. Before we moved into this facility back in 2010, we owned a ministry center space over by Outback Steakhouse. And ministry center is just a, is a fancy term for Tupperware warehouse, okay? We used to eat there, worship there when the church was much smaller. And we had a room in that place 
that we nicknamed, and it wasn't original us, we pirated it off Passion Ministries, we, we nicknamed our student ministries room, our youth room, the 268 room, okay, Isaiah 26.8. It was a way to talk about the renown and the desire of our souls and appoint kids to this God-centeredness of life. Well, when we moved here, we sold the ministry center. We moved in here, and at, right before we were to open, the fire marshal came in and they did the whole occupancy thing. And so, like, you know, th this room can handle this many people. And so you'll see a little sign out there. I think it says a thousand and something occupancy for this auditorium. And then they did an occupancy for the brand new youth room. And if you'll notice, what it says on there, the occupancy is what? 268. We didn't, we, we didn't pay off the, the fire marshal to do that, okay? That, that, that stuff just happened. What, is that, what relevance does this have to this sermon? None at all. I just wanted to tell you this story, okay? <laughs> no, what? By having Isaiah 26, 8, what a, if you want to camp out on a verse, yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your law, we eagerly wait for you. For your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. See, what, what God is giving us here is, is, is not a rote prayer. It's not something to check off the box. He's saying, here is a pattern to your prayers. Begin with me and say, God, we want your name to be lifted up. We want your will to be done. We want you to establish your kingdom. And I believe as we begin to pray those things, God begins to reorient our prayer life. Many of you saw the movie Hidden Figures. It's the story of NASA where there's a small group of African-American um, women who were working in the back room of NASA doing all of the mathematical equations. So while all the important people were up front and doing the astronaut training and this, that, and the other, these women were in the back room doing all the calculations needed to actually land someone on the moon. And there's a, there's a pivotal point in the story where NASA realizes they, they've miscalculated whatever they're doing in some way, and they know that just the slightest decimal point, right, can be catastrophic. It's one thing to say we're off 0.0001 degrees on the launch pad. That, that's fine for a couple of minutes, but it's not so fine when you're 20,000 feet in the air. And just the slightest deviation in that trajectory from the beginning causes a catastrophic failure on the other end. It's a great analogy for prayer. God says, if you align your heart with me and pray that I will accomplish my will in your life, I will begin to reorient you. I will open your eyes. I, I, will, I will show you that, you know, my kingdom is not just confined to this little corner. I, I'm operating everywhere all the time, all at once. And we are bolstered. We are encouraged in our praying. Last thing I say before we come to the table. I want to, I want to end where we began. Pastor Paul, I, this is helpful, but I still struggle in my praying. Where do we look to 
for encouragement in this? And of course, there's only one answer. We looked at Jesus. Jesus didn't just teach us to pray. Listen, he prayed. Matthew 26, Jesus is in the, in the garden. He's, a, he's being betrayed and he prays. Now listen, this is so, so profound, so simple, so profound. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's a totally legitimate prayer. It's a totally proper prayer. And some of you are in your life right now are saying, God, this thing that's happening in my marriage or with my kids or my job or my body, let this cup pass from me. Totally legitimate prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And aren't we thankful he prayed that? Because Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, not because you guys are all so awesome in your praying. I'm going to the cross because you aren't. Because you don't know God as Father. And unless I do this, you won't know God as Father. And I'm laying my life down for you. You poor, prayerless people of God. But I love you. I care for you. I am your Father in heaven. Let's pray.